You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by Sean and not Rick once more. Rick is actually at the San Diego Comic Con, um, so I'm kind of jealous of him. Actually, He's probably just waiting in line somewhere at the San Diego Comic Con. Sweating. So, yeah, so I'm not sure if I'm jealous. Although he's probably cosplaying something really cool, like that Kingpin costume with his uh, beautiful fiance uh, cosplaying something else awesome. Oh, I thought you were going to say his beautiful bald head. <laughs> well, that's beautiful too. In Rick's place, we have Adam Rayberg of Adam's Apple Games. He's a longtime client of ours, and he has Planet Unknown Supermoon live on GameFound right now. And I'm so excited to talk to him about a million different things. Adam, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I've been a listener for a while now. And, you know, there's just a wealth of knowledge coming out of this podcast. So I'm honored to be here. Uh, a little bit about, I guess, Adam's Apple Games. We got we got our starts. We got our start in like 2015. We uh, It's kind of just me for most of the, most of the the way and we have been a crowdfunding first focused company so most of our games that we've put out have been you know have gone through crowdfunding all the way back first project was was a game called Bruin USA on Kickstarter and then all the way up to kind of our recent success with Planet Unknown um, our company tends to focus on unique components that's kind of our 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 fun factor that we bring um, and an awesome table presence and um yeah how did we get to know each other so i think Planet Unknown was starting to kind of take off and I didn't feel like I had necessarily the ability to to harness the the momentum after like day one of a project launch that that I had not experienced before. You know, we had done a lot of Kickstarter crowdfunding. I this time around, I think I said we're going to put our money where our mouth is and we're going to really market the project. And so on like prepping up to a Planet Unknown launch back in 2020, we had, um, you know, we had maybe spent $5,000, $7,000 of marketing like ahead of the project. That includes trade shows, that includes traveling overseas to, to Essen, all that kind of stuff. And so we really just, you know, spring loaded that, that first campaign. And that was more marketing dollars that we had spent on every single campaign combined in the past. Yeah. And so things shot up and we're all of a sudden, you know, we're like, okay, we need, we need someone to help. And who did I look toward? I think I, I don't know where I, I, I got your name, Andrew, but all of a sudden we crossed paths. I think maybe you had some really um, insightful posts on Facebook groups and whatnot, um, potentially a, a podcast that I listened to as well. And I said, I'm on board. Like, I think I need help. I think you, you sound like you know what you're doing and you can potentially take this to the next level. Um, you, you came in, you were very hands-on personally with the project. And I, I was the kind of person who I'm like, well, this is my baby, right? Mm -hmm. This is anyone creates their, their game, right? It's your baby. And so I want to watch what you're doing. And so, you know, not only did I have some some marketing experience leading up into Planet Unknown, but I just didn't know where to go from there. I didn't know how to scale. And so I watched what you were doing really closely. And that that was kind of how we 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 met. Yeah. It, you know, it was it was uh, really interesting because your project is one that it, that first Planet Unknown campaign that we took on at the time, it was just me on the crowdfunding side. I had no other help. And it was uh, it was it was really interesting because. You you came to me on day two of launch, and you said, "I you know I need help. Let's do this. I'm good to go." And I just remember jumping in and taking over. And I don't I don't even think the check cleared yet, but I'm like, "Hey, you know, let's." It just was do so this. fast. <laughs> it was like I and it was so fast. Yeah, and you told me 
that, you know, you had, I want to say it was like your fourth project at the time that you had launched as a company, but it was the, the grail project or like the, it was your baby. The other, the other games were important, but this is the one that you've been working on a long time that you were really like, this is going to make my company kind of thing. Isn't that right? Yeah. And, 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 you know, we, we've learned a lot about crowdfunding over the time, over the years too. And so this is like probably one of the heaviest games that we've made and crowdfunding tends to work out, you know, tends to be more spring-loaded in general with a game that is right for the market. And it doesn't have to necessarily be heavy or light, but if it is right for the market, you don't know what game is going to be right for the market. Mm-hmm. I think we made some really awesome games in the past that were, that were great, but not great for crowdfunding, mm-hmm. right? So once you find one, once you sort of hit that, that project that is, is right for crowdfunding. Um, and of course we had like five, seven years built up into this, developing this, this game, making things really cool. It was still very much an, like a, a project that was wavering at the time because we didn't have all of our decisions made. We, we were taking so much input from the community to make the project better. Um, but you know, I needed that to spend that attention on the project versus like trying to optimize marketing yeah. At that moment. Yeah. yeah. And I, it, you know, it was interesting because a lot of it was just new territory for both of us, where traditionally what happens is you make 50% of your funding, or at the time I would say 40% in the first 48 sure. to 72 hours of your project. And you made, I remember the number, it was $30,000 at that point on, on day two. Yeah. And you know, when I, when I saw it and came on board and everything and we started marketing, I, we, did something like 20 to 40 bucks a day. We were like, all right, let's, let's go for it. It seemed like it was working. We didn't have a Facebook pixel inside Kickstarter at the time. We just had kind of the gut feeling of like, what happened when we turned the ads on and your, your revenues just kept going up. And it, it had this really strange curve where it was like, for a game like this, normally I would expect if you made 30 K in the first 48 hours, you might hit, maybe 60 to 75 uh, for the project and you ended at 260,000. And I remember yeah. talking uh, like four or five times, we just doubled the budget until we we're at like 700 bucks right. a day in ad spend and like trying to figure out how can we spend as much as possible on Facebook for this project? Well, let's see how, where the momentum goes. It wasn't like, it wasn't how can we spend as much <laughs> as possible, but it was like, let's, let's, I mean, the ROI seems good. The, the you know the the marketing metrics that you look at things like what is the the cost per click that wasn't changing when we would double the budget right that wasn't changing drastically and you would expect that to change kind of drastically so clearly there was something going on with the project that people they 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 were you know becoming um engaged when they saw the marketing message or the graphics or the gameplay or whatever you know like what was the x factor and clearly like we had we had the lazy Susan, mm-hmm. right? So we had the component X factor. We had um, a lot of really cool stuff happening within the project too. But yeah, it just it it, it was an unnatural project for sure in in the way that curves look. Usually it's like a, a barbell, yep. right? And this this almost is like um, just a title. Yeah, word. yeah, that's a that's an excellent way to explain it. And one thing that I remember, so I cannot take credit all credit for the the explosive growth. I'm not. I certainly wouldn't be so haughty as to think that I was the reason that you had all your success. I remember something in particular that happened during the campaign, and that was that Rado really, really liked your game and sang its praises. How big of an effect yes. do you think that had on your yeah. curve? 
huge. Like influencers in huge. general. We, was Rado the only one, or do you remember others that um, made a big difference? We, we typically try to um, work with the right influencer mm-hmm. heading into a campaign. This game really felt like it was made for Rado. High on the satisfaction, lower on, low on the indirect player interaction in terms of like negative indirect, mm-hmm. ne- negative direct interactions. Sorry, that's that's Rado's secret sauce. Like he he loves that kind of a game. He gets really passionate about it, and there was a, a lot of decision space. So like as you'd watch his videos, he would he really narrates his thought process, and like it's it's just really engaging to mm-hmm. watch. And so he has a he has a, a a very strong fan base, you know, as a result of like his personality, how he does videos, how he has you know been creating co- content for a very long time, and he you know interfaces with a lot of the other really big names in content creation in the board game space. And so when he says like this is the one, like this is my polyomino game, other people start to mm-hmm. listen, and so that started to also make waves as well. From a like weird like from how did this do from a marketing standpoint? Rado for campaign previews, uh, it's it's a you know it's a pay paid preview, and he he mentions that on the video, um, as many previews are as they probably should mm-hmm. be, right? But he also is giving his very much his gut reactions on on what's going on and like how I feel, and I think as a creator, you know the audience builds like you know you start to trust that creator when they're just very authentic all the mm-hmm. time, and so. It, it just, it panned out like, you know, Rado drops the Kickstarter link on this video. Um, we're able to track how many, how many uh, people that watched the video came over to Kickstarter and converted from that actual link. And I want to say it was like 500 yeah. people. It was like, it was a really, really high number. And that's, that probably doesn't capture everyone either because there's, po- it's a possibility that somebody clicks the link, lands on the page, does something else, remembers mm-hmm. it later, and then, you know, chooses to support. So the fact that, you know, we had, I think 42 56 backers the first time around. Rado drove, what is that? Yeah, like 15% um, of them. Over 12, 15% <laughs> yeah. of them. That is crazy. That's crazy. Just one person, yeah. right? Yep. It is, uh, it is now, amazing. It's not always going to happen like mm-hmm. that, right? Like you, you, like he really like embraced the game and, and was really passionate about it. So yeah, I mean, when you're choosing creators, find, find the ones that are passionate. It highlights something that's very interesting to me. There is this feeling that a lot of especially newer creators have where they're like, you know, I need influencers, all the influencers need to hit at the beginning of my Kickstarter. And that's how I'm going to get funded because they have a community of thousands and thousands of people they are talking to. And I think that's a huge mistake because if that's the only rely or the only thing you're relying on, and that's just simply because you need to have an audience already to fund the game. And if it's then funded quickly, the influencers will have more of an effect because their audience goes to the sure. game and says, Oh yeah, it's already funded. Yeah. It must be a winner. And it, it's like confirms everything that the influencer has been saying. I think that's a, a great point. I mean, they're, they magnify the result. They don't bring necessarily the audience. And I think the fact that we had funded on day one, we, I mean, we had done a ton of pre-marketing. Like, like I said, we went to Essen set up a 30 foot booth and just played planet unknown with tons of Germans <laughs> and other, you know, people around um, that travel to Essen and they freaking loved it. Like they, they ate it up. They, they played the entire game and um, we had like a 90% conversion rate of people that left the booth that set that left their email and said, let me know when this is. Available. Wow. And that's incredible. So when did you decide that you were going to get a 30 foot booth? Like what made you decide that you were going to do that. 
we went in we went to Essen the year before with our uh with our game sword crafters we brought too much inventory with us that year and we had a small little you know 10 foot booth getting into Essen's really tough we had an in um it was kind of a friend of a friend type thing that has you know really overcommits uh-huh. on both sides and they're like well we want to booth share and the way that I think they become a, a they, they have a big presence, they get into the right hall, they get into the right spot mm-hmm. is they really overcommit on their booth size in Essen. Um, our, that has sort of changed in the future um, just because the, you know, the, the world has changed as well, but it, you know, and we hope to be back in the future, but that was the situation. And so we talked to them and said, can we go bigger next year? Can we do 30 feet? Um, I think it was 30 uh-huh. meters. And they said, yes. And so, Sure enough, now we have this giant booth. Like the the positioning of the booth was not great. It was kind of like a really long and shallow booth. Mm-hmm. You had to you walk quite far back to, you know, but like so many people playing Tables of Planet Unknown. And keep in mind, these are like pretty rough prototypes. These are Game Crafter laser cuts. These are actual Lazy Susans that we sourced from Amazon. And we 3D printed like stilts and, you know, and um, <laughs> chassis where the tiles could sort of sit in place. And they like the different prototypes sort of showed you how many iterations we had gone through. Cause if you'd walk down the road, you'd see like a different, <laughs> a different lazy Susan, like a different approach on how to hold the tiles. And, you know, we were just trying everything and anything to try to figure out the right solution for the, for the, for the component, but we knew the component was magic. That's so cool. And that maybe, you know, it was a prelude to this, the spiel, the Kenner spiel, the Yaris award. Possibly. Um, yeah. It, you, you basically got a bunch of Germans really excited you have a German language uh, partner that you know yes. took the game, and now you became nominated for the Kenner Spiel des Jahres. Uh, but let's—I'd like to talk about Planet Unknown today, the Supermoon campaign, and the sure. lessons that you learned. A lot of stars have aligned over the past three years to make this campaign what it what it is. And but there were also a lot of bumps along the way, right? Like like trying to navigate that whole um, shipping crisis that that has been really tough. And and I think we we kind of promised like a six to nine month delivery on the first game. That was a, that was a mistake, right? It ended up being close to like 19 or 20 mm-hmm. months. And by the time the game got delivered, people sort of had forgot about it. And we were we were still excited to deliver. We knew we made something great. But all of a sudden uh, started ripples started, you know, st- you'd start to hear ripples, right? And so like a pebble drops in the water and it makes a ripples. If, if, if enough of those ripples combined, your waves mm-hmm. grow and that's what can build hype, right? And and I think we really, you know, releasing a game in 2022 was an interesting time because it was really tough to get a big box game over the ocean. So there weren't that many big box games coming out that year. We had a lot of, uh, we had a lot of attention availability for Planet Unknown, but it, it also deserves it. I mean, it like it's doing things in the in the market in the in the in the industry that are just different, that are pushing the boundary a little bit with po- uh, with polyomino gameplay, you know, large player counts, um, simultaneous play, and I think it's just hitting a lot of the things that people want to hit. So the gameplay is delivering, and a couple of other you know things fell into place along the way. So for example, we started getting all these localizations interested in the game, and that was not based on our Kickstarter project success, but it was based on the game delivering and people playing it and people saying, I need this. I need this in my market. This is going mm-hmm. somewhere. And we've, we've just sort of been watching it like climb the ranks of like BGG and, you know, all of a sudden all these influencers are saying like it's our top or top three game of the year. It's just, it has been getting a lot of notoriety, right? And so like the stars have aligned with that. At the same time, 
leading up to a new project, um, we're very, uh, we're excited to continue to support the brand. I mean, this is like a, just something we, we, we love the game. We think the gameplay, we kept it actually pretty tight on the start, right? So there's a lot of things we could still explore. And so let's do an expansion. Great. But then there's other, there's some other decisions you make going into a, a campaign. You're like, is it just the expansion campaign? Is it the expansion plus the reprint? What else are we going to deliver? What is the thing that brings a, a supporter from a previous project to the new project? What is the thing that brings someone new as well into the project? And so we, we really needed to think about that. And I think we landed on the polyomino lazy Susan lit mm-hmm. as the thing that was missing and everyone was asking for. So we just like kept listening to our customers saying, it, you know, we need a lid. And people have come up with the craziest solutions to try to deliver this, this feature, this benefit to the game that probably should have been there in the first place. But from our, from, I guess, to, to our, in my defense, like we're kind of like horizontal game stores. <laughs> and so we didn't really understand that so many people store their games on their side. So many people bring their games to uh, play at the game table. And so it was a little bit of like, uh, we think the box is going to close perfectly. And we think that the tiles are going to stay in place. A couple of things happened with the design of that Lazy Susan and the, bo- and the box sizing that, that made that not so true. And so there was a, a like a ravenous demand for a lid. One thing I want to jump into, Adam, is the inspiration for the Supermoon expansion. I think it was quite unique sure. in that you examined the box cover of the original game and that then influenced your design for the expansion. Do you want to maybe talk a little bit about that thought process? Yeah, there's some fun stories about the box cover art. So, uh, And then it does influence design for sure. So um, one of the stories is that you know, we were working with an artist who is fantastic and, um, you know, he's made this, this really cool art and, you know, people, I think, um, like the game took a long time to come out and people have started to say like, Oh, it, you know, it's like, it's so obvious that you would do that with the art. And I'm thinking to myself, it, yes, it may be today. Cause now we see all these like tile placement games where tiles are dropping down from the sky and falling into place. But like that scene is a really nice depiction of what, you know, what inspiration and thematics should do to also reinforce that this is like a tabletop game. So like those two things come together and merge really nicely. And so if I think back to my whiteboard back in 2015, I say, we drew this like before this really had been done much. And not that we were, you know, charting new territory with the art or whatever, but I I think, um, you know, the the board game industry has been watching and learning and and, and this type of a theme has become more common. Not saying we were the ones that, started the theme, but saying that this is on point with, with ev- evocative artwork, right? And it evocative can be pros and cons, whatever. So anyway, we, we look at the box and we're like, we, we love our art. It's fun. Um, it, it evokes the theme. What can we do that? Like, where do we go next with an expansion? Right. And so just like looking at the thing and we're like, well, there's this like meteor coming in and smashing a tile and breaking it apart. We're like, what if like the meteors really got turned up a notch and we lean into that meteor. <laughs> Um, and then we said, well, what if what if the, the spaceship's not carrying a, a a tile? What if it's carrying something else? So we, we had it carry a rover this time. And then we looked at, of course, a couple of the moons in the corner. We're like, there has to be moons. Like, what else? Like, you're developing your planet. What comes next naturally? You're developing your moon. Um, and so it was a way to uh, really just look at what we've painted, you know, the, the artwork and the picture that we painted in the past and have that inform what's going on in the future. Mm-hmm. And I, I 100% expect to continue that 
process. I think it's a great story. It helps connect the two things together. Yeah, it's a it's a really fantastic thing. I love how you guys used what is just I mean the the lore of the game to just elevate the actual gameplay. I feel like it it, it in a way it kind of reminds me of how professional chef will say like Gordon Ramsay will say the first thing you eat with is your eyes. You you have to yes. look at something and it has to appetize you. And that makes the first bite that much better. And I think that theme is really the thing that does that for a game where they instantly know, you know, a player instantly knows why they should care who they are, you know, why it matters in, in the gameplay. And I think that it just kind of positions the game really elegantly in the mind of the player and lets the player's imagination run wild from that, from there. And one more thing I'll add too is we're not only thinking about theme, we're also thinking about like one of the one of the core design principles that we put into Planet Unknown, and I think has delivered, maybe not in a way where you would you you can like you you can um, understand it's happening while it's happening, but we think about something called play patterns, and the the whole idea of like play pattern design. A good way to explain it is like a dog toy. Mm-hmm. So when you have a dog toy, some dogs really like to tug, some dogs really like to fetch, and some dogs really like to cuddle. Humans have these same play patterns, but they're harder to tease out what they are. And you can find them lying inside of different game genres, right? So this like polyominal style gameplay, like for example, make a really big, massive one color. Like that's a play pattern that people like. Try to like get things all the way to the top. That's a play pattern thing, you know, people like. And so we really wanted to lean into uh, game design principles that deliver satisfaction. And so with the Supermoon and with other expansions, that's something we also think about. We think about where are the thematics going, but also what are like the play patterns that we can continue to build upon? What are the the groups of um, players that that would really be energized about a certain new thing coming? So for example, Planet Unknown is is a pretty solid solo game, right? Like, but Supermoon didn't do a ton to like to to scratch that solo itch. So is there a play there in the future? Um, Planet Unknown is a simultaneous play game, but it didn't do a ton with Supermoon to make things more, um, you know, interactive or feel like feel uh, competitive and interactive. Like it gave you a lot more of the same stuff with Supermoon and and increased the puzzle factor and the thematics. But those are like angles that we'll be looking at from a expansion standpoint in the future. Also based on you know also like tying along those themes. So in Deliverance, you know, my game, I tied the core gameplay loop to the thing that, you know, I tried to make that the thing players would want to do so that the game would end. And uh, in in Deliverance, you're angels and you're fighting demons and you win the game by defeating all the demons. So I I made it so that, you know, demons give you experience, which allow you to level. It's very much like a a common MMORPG type tenet of, of gameplay where you kill the low level thing, it levels you up so you can kill the low level thing faster which makes you want to go kill higher level things to ramp that experience. And um, in Deliverance, that is actually what you need to do in order to end the game. So by doing what is desirable, it actually brings the game toward its conclusion. So when you say play patterns, it kind of makes me think of that, where by doing the thing that is desirable, by scoring points, by patterning in a certain way, you bring the game toward its inevitable conclusion. And how does Planet Unknown end? Yeah, you uh, can't place a tile anymore. So to that point, like if 
you know, the, the optimist, the max, the, like I watched my daughter playing, um, she's two years old. Right. And I watch her like working with puzzles and it is such a, a, like an early learned skill to fit the puzzle piece in the spot. And so like, that is a satisfying thing in itself. And so if you can't place a piece anymore, the game is over. Um, it doesn't do it in a, in a dissatisfying way either. It says, well, you can't place this piece. Everyone else can place as normal. You, you still get the benefits from the tile, but you can't place it. And so like, there's, there's like a, um, you know, there, there's a, a little bit of a, a bonus mm -hmm. anyway. Um, but yeah, that it, it ends up being like a, a really natural endpoint. Mm -hmm. Very cool. So when we're talking about the theme and how important it is and how it impacts mechanics, what were some of the inspirations or influences into Planet Unknown? Uh, were there any ones that were pretty, you know, left of field or kind of strange? Like, oh, that's uh, that's a good idea from this. I'm going to incorporate because I imagine th this idea of the lazy Susan you know, that probably didn't come from playing another board game. So, where did some of these concepts and ideas right. come from? Yeah, the uh, so a couple of the inspiration points. Um, one of them was the asymmetric factions for StarCraft. So, you know, the Zerg, the Protoss, um and the Terran, mm -hmm. right? And how different those were. We really wanted to deliver something like that for a game. And, and we, you know, there's there's some wildly asymmetric games that have like different asymmetric win conditions. We didn't necessarily want to go that crazy, but we wanted to make your corporation, your player experience feel very different. So we were able to bring the StarCraft along and that was really natural because it was in space as well. The second one was actually a game, you know, eight, seven, eight, nine years ago, Ma Machi Koro. Um, and so the one of the initial prototypes of this game was it had a bunch of stacks of tiles in the center of the table. I don't even know if they were stacks. They might've just been like thrown out there. And it each tile had like a, di a dice on it. And so when you rolled your dice, if the, if you had the number, like your, your tile started producing resources. And so what was really cool about that was, was you were still taking turns, I think at the time to like, you know, acquire tiles um, and purchase them. And that went around the table, but like this, like it felt like we could have done that from a simultaneous standpoint. And at some point we said, well, well we need to organize where the tiles sit. I put them on like a, a frozen pizza wheel and I drew kind of shapes where the tiles were. And at some point we said, why don't we just turn this and like serve the tile to the player? And then at that point it clicked and said, this is a, this is a simultaneous play game. Um, that is cool. And yeah, it, it it all fell into place. I, I one one of the things that I think stands out to me about Planet Unknown is that if you're playing with five players or you're playing with two players, it'll take the same amount of time almost. There's yeah. always that one guy that's like, pick your tile. The, but of of course, you know, analysis <laughs> paralysis can affect any game, but the leaning into simultaneous play does a lot of, of really good things. It also has some some drawbacks too. Um, but it I think it the market has really resonated with simultaneous mm -hmm. play recently. Now, if if every game coming out is all simultaneous play, I think the market mm -hmm. will, you know, start to kick back. Yeah, get excited about some turn-based stuff too. So it kind of depends what's coming out and um, how people are doing it. But you know, that that's another thing I guess I'd mention with Planet Unknown is like market white space, right? Like this this to me, I just don't know that you can find a polyomino game that plays six players in an hour and it makes you feel like you've taken a lot of turns, right? Isla Cats. Yeah has has done done really well with this really similar vibe and so i think these two games have sort of risen to the top in terms of like what's possible with polyamorous yep. let's move into some things that you talked about earlier there were 
two things that I really wanted to, to get back into, which was listening to the customer and then what you had mentioned earlier about the stars aligning. Um, so in reverse order, I'd like to talk about the stars, how the stars aligned for you. And what the way that yeah. I always think about this in my head is that eventually a game has to stand on its own. You mentioned that the game took nine, you, you, you planned on nine, nine months to delivery. It ended up being about 18 or, or like 19 or 20 months to delivery. And you said that your quote was something along the lines of the customers forgot about the game until it delivered. And then after it delivered, you had a bunch of momentums begin. You had people that all of a sudden reached out to you to translate. Whereas before, during your Kickstarter, I mean, you had like, I want to say 4,000 backers or more and like 250K raised on your first Planet Unknown Kickstarter, but you didn't get a ton of um, maybe people reaching out. But then after the game was released and people got to play it, you had a ton of people reaching out. So I'd love to, you know, um, maybe to provide a little more context, I had this, um, you know, with, with Deliverance, it was a very kind of an unproven concept, this idea of like a Christian game that was good because most people would agree that Christian games are just not as good as normal games, um, you know, in any way. And sure. um, the, the, the idea is that I, I didn't want to spend money on ads and run a Kickstarter for a game that was just that people didn't want. So I figured the concept has to prove itself from the very beginning. And I built an email list organically to 1100 before I spent a penny on ads. And then, and I knew people yeah. wanted this. And so, you know, we made 300 K on Kickstarter and then now we're about a month from delivery to, to the majority of customers. That's exciting. It is very exciting. And it's also very scary because of this concept of, you know, the stars aligning or rather the game has to stand on its own feet after people get it. They are, have to be the ones that say, wow, I love this so much. I'm going to share it with everybody. I'm going to, you know, or whatever the influencers that get it that I, I mean, I know there are some famous people that ended up ordering the game, famous board game designers that uh, I was completely shocked. Like, um, you know, that some really famous board game designers that I have on my shelf bought the game. But in the end, when they get the game, if they look at it and play it once and that's it, I mean, it's, I guess it's no one's fault if that happens, but the game has to really stand on its own two feet in order to justify its existence. If it has 10 print runs, it's my baby. It's the, it's the thing I made. That's like, took me five years before I hit Kickstarter, similar uh, to you with planet unknown. And a lot of people listening to this have their baby, the thing that they've been working on. They're like, it, when this is done, it's going to revolutionize the world. It's going to be my evergreen. And, you know, a lot of the time people that take a project from beginning all the way to end, it really kind of, you know, and they feel like that it really kind of does become the core of their, their company. I don't know if it's going to be a big company or a small one, or if it'll exist forever or, or, or what, but that oftentimes is the game that will carry them for a long time. And so I guess I would just love to hear from you about the concept of a game have has to stand on its own. Uh, what does that mean? What is it? How, how can you help your game, you know, build momentum? What can you do? How can you affect that? Can you affect that? What are the indicators you look for of a game just justifying its own existence and needing a reprint and needing an expansion? And, you know, I mean, is that a decision that you made long before it delivered to work on the expansion? So many questions. That 
Uh, we, we, yeah, we did make a decision to work on expansion, um, through some random Kickstarter update along the way. We're like, this has been so fun. We're near delivery. We're going to do an expansion. We're committing to it now. And we, I think we, we said, you know, if you go help and share the, like share the word, we will, um, pick five random winners in the future and like give you the free expansion. This is like a lot of promises, uh-huh. right? Um, I don't know that that like energized people to go do things, but yeah, the kind of going back to the stars aligning and what can you do? And, and the game has to stand on its own. Um, just a, a couple of like points of how the stars did align along the way. So right when the right, like basically the day after I talked to you and we started working together from a marketing standpoint, I, I, I talked to a localization agent who at the time I was like, okay, I'm coming it recommended from, uh, from the, our artist. And I said, sure. Why not? Like you seem like you're a passionate guy. Let's, let's see what happens. Right. And he was very, um, you know, he, uh, this is Michael. Yep, with, uh, I believe it's Vanguard. Like, now. He, with, I was going to yeah. ask if it was and, Michael, and he, because he's, he's pretty awesome. Uh, we have a high opinion of Michael Reptopolis around here. Yeah. He, he's very passionate about what he does and he fights for the game. And we, we landed like two big localized localizations at, after the project. And I was like, woo, this is awesome. This, you know, this localization thing is going to be great. And, you know, things, things delivered and all of a sudden more countries started reaching out and his network has grown and he's gotten better at what he does. And so like through his company's growth, we've been one of the early, probably early beneficiaries of that. Uh, and also I think that, you know, the game delivering has also attracted that demand as well. But to your point about a game has to stand on its own, I think I kind of go back to from a game designer standpoint, and I, I wear my game designer hat before you ship your baby out into the world and has, you know you have to let them grow up. How do you know when a game is done? And that, that's like one of the really tough questions as, to answer as a game designer. And so the way that I have learned to answer that question is when I teach the game to a group of people, a new group of people, and I am 99% sure they're going to like it. I'm, I'm freaking just rock solid. I'm like, this game's great. Like you're, you're going to love it. And if, if, if that, like, you know, there's a, there's a feedback loop there, right? You can't just think that, like, you can't have that confidence without the results, but if you've played it enough that you have instilled that confidence, then in my opinion, the game is done and it is ready to stand on its own. Not only is the game done, but it is also ready to stand on its own. So it has some factors in it where people are going to going to leave the table satisfied, excited, you know, interested to talk about it and really like build a little bit of viral virality into the product to help it market itself in the future. Right now. Sure. Like we partnered with, with influencers after um, afterwards from a review standpoint. And also I think the fact that we, we, we were going into the pandemic. Right. And so we produce with a giant shipping issue. So we, we, we produced the amount that we could afford to ship <laughs> and like, we're like, we're going to break even on, the, on this project. Like we was, it was a slam dunk of a project, but then the pandemic hit. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, this is maybe a break even project at best. And so those factors, I think like probably loaded a, a, a spring, you know, product standing on its own, not a lot of uh, product in the market. And then also like just a really expensive and long production process to make in the future. And of course, every time we remake it, we were trying to instill new or trying to build a new kind of quality improvements, upgrades and, and little things along the way that, that make it a better game overall and, and continue to deliver. Um, 
So yeah, that's a long-winded answer to say like, you know, the stars have kind of aligned and and it, it I think really helped create a, a large pool of demand for the next for the next project. So maybe in regard to demand and the amount that you printed, I I thought about for deliverance, we sold roughly 3000 units and then since we've sold maybe it's been about 4000 units and a bunch of add-ons sure. and whatnot. I decided to print 5000 total. And it leaves sure. around 1000 units left in the market when deliverance hits. And what my hope is, is there's, you know, a thousand units, $99 MSRP, um, $99,000 plus some add-ons left and, and all of that. That's the amount of revenue that I have tied up in product now. I considered printing 6,000 and I decided not to because number one, it was the same thing that you said, where I don't know if I can afford to ship a thousand more units across the ocean. Right. I'm just going to, rather than have to take another partial container or whatever, I'm just going to use my two full containers going to the U S and, and call it good. You know, I, and I, and then I thought about, I'm getting this stuff in, you know, over summertime, we're going to get into the Christmas season. I would expect that I should yep. sell out of everything I own of deliverance by Christmas, you know, by, you know, I need to sell out of everything or, you know, it's going to be a lot harder to sell it, you know, during the normal course of the year, people are just much more open to buying product at retail in uh, or buying direct or buying off Amazon or whatever, when it comes to Christmas time, you know, pro products like this. So I thought I would rather sell through all of it than have inventory eating up space. Do you generally think that it's a good decision to sell out and then have demand where you can't fulfill it or to, you know, I mean, I, I know that other people talk about like, Hey, make as much as you can. Do you think that's ever a mistake? These are good questions. And I have, you know, a, a dime, the dime's worth of experience <laughs> on roughly like 10 projects, right? So it's not like I have a hundred projects to look at previously. But I, what I will say is that like demand and supply can do some pretty crazy things, right? Like we're not, humans are not logical beings, <laughs> right? And I think that's kind of part of why this is so interesting from a marketing standpoint and a product manager standpoint, if you just make infinite supply of the thing, like you're sort of competing against yourself to mm -hmm. sell it, right? And it also like the more, the, the wider available something is, the more other, you know, online sellers that you now are competing against as well too. So like we've grown as a company, we've done a lot of, you know, we, we, we partner with a, a consolidator, PSI pretty early on. And that has been an interesting opportunity, but also there's some challenges with, with those kind of things, right? Like mm -hmm. when we had Bruin USA, our first game, we crushed it on Amazon back in 2015. We had 500 sales leading into the Christmas season or whatever, and, and felt awesome and, and great about that. And I think PSI saw those numbers and they're like, sure, let's pick these guys up, you know? Um, well, what I didn't know at the time was that now competing for a sale on Amazon or competing for a sale on my website, I now am competing with a lot of other people as well. And so I've sort of like given that, like I, I sort of readjust my targets in terms of what, what a project is going to do. And so then the other layer to that is like, if, if something is kind of like ready for like a retail market, and if something is like you know, web store sale or kind of a post Kickstarter sale product. And so there, there's a little, a little bit of a, a different hat I would wear there as well. Mm -hmm. um, with something more retail friendly, I think like you do just want to like get 
a critical mass out there with something more Kickstarter ready or Kickstarter friendly or post Kickstarter, that critical mass is already hitting. And so you do want the ability to to continue to profit off that. But I, I do agree that like, like you can really shoot yourself in the foot by printing too many copies. The, the reality is the amount that you save to print that extra thousand is is not that significant, especially when you're in, in like the five to six thousand range. If you're going from like one to two thousand, mm-hmm. that can be a pretty significant savings per copy. So I think there's a number for especially for an indie for a small publisher that that is right. It is somewhere between my opinion, like two thousand and and four thousand mm-hmm. for an initial project, depending on how your 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 crowdfunding did. And if you're not crowdfunding, I would be careful about the four thousand number. I think that's a, a that's a risky a risky number to to go after. So Adam, yeah. Supermoon right now is <laughs> crushing it on GameFound. I think you have over 6,000 uh, supporters, backers, raised over half a million. What was the, the, the thought process behind choosing GameFound as opposed to Kickstarter? Because, you know, as we all know, it's sort of new territory, a bit scary when you have the kind of old faithful of Kickstarter. So maybe just enlighten our listeners of why you chose GameFound over Kickstarter in this particular instance? Well, I lost some sleep over this decision for sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in fact, it, I was sitting at my my booth at Gamma and standing next to some really talented creators. And I, I picked their brain on this question. And every single one of them said, I would not touch GameFound if I have a proven audience on Kickstarter. And I just kept coming back to it. And I said, well, but GameFound does this, but GameFound does that, but GameFound does this. And so like, there's so many, there's feature rich things that are just really good for the creator but also really good for the backer. And the there were a lot of question marks that I had too. And some of those question marks are like, well, what is the audience engagement going to be? Like how, you know, how are the metrics? Like what's the back end going to look like? How is the platform going to perform in terms of, you know, all, like all those questions needed to be answered. GameFound did a great job of making themselves available and also proactively like, talking me through the questions, the challenges and the project page as well. So I I guess I can't say enough for like how they've handled, how they've handled me as a customer, as a creator. And that means a lot because, uh, you know, from a backer standpoint, when I bounce someone from Kickstarter to another pledge manager, that is like one of the biggest bounces you can make. Right. And it's, we've, we've sort of become, um, I don't know, like, are like thick skinned to that, that tra- transition. But in the world of like e-commerce, like that is like the worst thing you can do is just bounce them from someone from A to B. If you don't have to, why not just keep them on A? Why not just deliver all the benefits in, in the same spot? Now, of course, the amount of traffic that uh, a Kickstarter site gets versus a GameFound is not the same right now. Flip side, GameFound is a hyper targeted traffic. Mm-hmm. So it's like people are there for board games. They're not there for a leather pouch, you know? Yep. So I, I said, well, this is a reprint. We have a, we have demand built into this game already because people can't get the base game. They can't get the deluxe edition and they want the game now. And so I think there, there's like a kind of a, a little bit of, you know, um, damage mitigation or like there, there's like a sort of a base built in that is excited for the product, no matter where I put this thing. Like I could have crowdfunded this thing on my, on my website and it probably still would have found the base. Would it have, you know, continued to grow? Would it have continued to activate the audience? Would it have picked up new eyeballs? No, I don't think so. So, um, but I think GameFound has done a, a pretty decent job of of bringing the, you know, making making the growth possible, right? Now, 
it, you're, I'm always going to have the question mark, what would have happened had we launched on Kickstarter? And I think everyone will have that question mark. Um, and and it, it just seems like a, an impossible answer, you know, because we've seen a couple projects try, like go on one platform and then go again on another platform. And so there's a little bit of like data that can be plucked there. But I, I think um, overall, I, I mean, I think a reprint a heavy game can tap into the game found audience quite well. And, and they, the, the platform has the tools to, to allow a creator, you know, the flexibility they need um, with, you know, with, with crowdfunding. So, yeah, I, I don't think that we're going to use, uh, utilize GameFound for every project. Cause I think we're going to make that decision of like, what is the right platform for the right project? Something mm-hmm. that maybe is more, more new game focused is probably a, a more Kickstarter friendly audience potentially. But at the same time, like I look at what this is on a game fund, I'm like, well, I don't know. Like maybe new games could do okay. Maybe we do have a fan base now that is already watching us, right? Already following us, right? And then in terms of the stretch pay, how popular has that been? Have you seen a lot of people jump into that or has that not been as maybe significant? We we opted for the stretch pay from a like a backer friendliness. Um, Cause you know, you don't always have like a, a hundred dollar bill lying around, but you want the thing. And so it helps like, it helps, you know, take the, it helps make that more affordable over time. I think there, there is a fair bit of people that asked for it. And honestly, like, like sort of upgraded to a deluxe edition or upgraded to like the neoprene mats because it was available. And they probably wouldn't have if that wasn't available. So they, they, they got more interested in the add-ons at mm-hmm. that point. We did not opt for the stable pledge guarantee going into GamePound, but I, I, I really love that that exists. I think there just was a lot of questions going on with the project, with the, you know, like finalizing, locking all the details. And from my experience with crowdfunding, like you just... You don't know everything. So I was really nervous to, to tick that box and say, yes, I know everything, you know, because we're humans. We just, we like, even though I've produced, you know, many print runs now of Planet Unknown, like one or two of the deluxe edition, now like a couple of the retail edition, we, we know what we're doing on this project. But at the same time, we haven't produced Supermoon. We now have a localization partners involved. Shipping continues to be a question mark. And so how can I, I don't, it, it just seems really tough to, 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 Assume you can know all the answers, particularly on a big box game, right? Where the shipping costs can really fluctuate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you continue to make cool things, like people will notice eventually, and it's possible that one of them will, you know, will will grow more than others. Yeah. So this is like uh, looking back at kind of the the design history, like the game history that we brought out. I've sort of felt that every single game that we made could have could have had some some viral growth built in. And some of them had a little bit here, a little bit there, um, but we just didn't have all the stars aligned. And this one did. It's amazing. Well, um, I guess that's a great place for us to conclude our podcast. Thanks so much, Adam, for joining us. And, uh, you know, good luck with the rest of your Supermoon campaign. 6,500 backers, over $600,000 raised so far. Uh, so go check it out. I actually backed the original game and I am backer 1963 for a Supermoon. So I was lazy. I didn't get oh, in on day you. one. I think. Maybe I did. I did get in on day one. I don't know. I think that would have been okay. day one. Yeah. So, so I, I, I didn't wake up in the morning thinking first thing I'm going to do is back this game. But as soon as I saw it, I jumped on it. So it's just, it's just that good of a game. I really enjoy it. 
I love, I, I tend to love space themed games anyway. Uh, anyway, thank you so much for, for being here. Any final thoughts? Um, you know, how can people find you? Uh, where can people get the, the uh, planet unknown game? Sure. And how can people contact you if they have questions? Sure. So yeah, so the company is Adam's Apple Games. Um, we we run you know crowdfunding via Kickstarter and GameFound. We're currently live on GameFound with our Supermoon campaign and Planet Unknown Deluxe reprint, and we're available via Twitter at Adam's Apple Games um, and our website as well. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, then I guess the only thing left to do is have Robot Richard send us out. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For more resources, articles, and to listen to past podcasts, please visit us at crowdfundingnerds.com. Thank you all again for listening to this week's episode, and we'll see you next week. Stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.